This is the Van City Church Podcast. The following guest teaching from Hakeem Bradley is part 12 in the series, You Were Dead, Letter to the Church in Colossae. What's up? Is that a thing that y'all, do y'all call the city the cool? Or is that like a Portlandian projection of what you guys do? Okay, well, for, for some of you, I, I know, and for most of you, I'm some random dude, and that's, and that's fine. But I want to give you a little bit of info about myself. Uh, I'm originally from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the home of the great cheesesteaks. And before you ask the question, I think Jersey Mike's does a pretty good job. <laughs> Number 43 in particular. <laughs> um, I've been married to my wife, Jasmine, for four years. We have a son, Ezekiel, who's a year and a half, and he's a tank, and he's amazing. Um, but growing up in Philadelphia was a very interesting experience. Very interesting. I grew up around the idea of Jesus, but not really the, the living out of his way of life, mainly because I had relatives who were believers. And I remember specifically being in my great-grandmother's house, and she had all of these paintings of black Jesus, and some, <laughs> and, and some of these paintings had like the eyes where if you move, it kind of follow you. So I was intrigued by that. Um, but I actually grew up in a black identity cult called the 5% Nation. In a nutshell, okay, I'm gonna give you a little synthesis. In a nutshell, they believe that black people are the supreme race, that we are gods incarnate, that Christianity, the way of Jesus, whatever you want to call it, is the construction of white people to enslave, and that only 5% of the world's population knows the truth about the universe and humanity and all of that stuff. To this day, I still don't know how they calculated 5%, but that was what I grew up in. So ironically, Hakeem goes from a predominantly black and Latino space in Philadelphia to the whitest city in America, started following Jesus while attending a predominantly white church while being discipled by white young life leaders. How did I get here? The irony, the humor of God is real. I had to deal with my prejudices. I had to deal with my, my racism. And here I am, still doing that. That's a little bit about my story. However, I was given a Bible. I was like 17 when I first started following Jesus. I was given a Bible, but wasn't taught much about how to actually read it. So what did I do? YouTube, right? That's what you do. You don't know how to do something, you go to YouTube. I said, okay, who am I going to listen to? So I'm trying to listen to the most popular pastors in America, which typically happen to be from a more reformed Calvinistic standpoint. And if that's where you lean, fine. I'm not doubting that. But that... That's kind of where I was at. So that informed how I read the scriptures. But then I started building relationships with people outside of that tradition. Pentecostal, Catholic, Orthodox, Messianic Jew. And my understanding of the scriptures theology was just getting beat up. But I realized nobody has it all figured out. We all come to the text. We all come to this faith with preconceived notions and beliefs. So... I think we also may do that with this first century letter that this dude Paul wrote. So I'm just going to offer a different perspective. Before you get all antsy, it's not heresy, okay? (laughs) But just a different perspective on this text. I think Paul might be teaching something that, other than what's commonly taught, taught, excuse me, 
So with that said, if you get angry, you can email Josh or somebody else. You ain't got to talk to me. But anyways, <laughs> so let's get into it. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 16. We'll have some verses up here for you as well. Therefore, I think, if not, I'll just read it. Um, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the, and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch these rules which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use are based on merely human commands and teachings. Last verse. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Boom. And just to warn you, I like to get passionate, so if I start yelling, I'm not yelling at you, I'm yelling with you, okay? So, the, the common interpretation of this passage, and honestly where I landed prior to me doing some study for this teaching, was that Paul was talking about how the Jewish customs are now empty because Jesus is the substance. And that these Colossians shouldn't fall prey to the Jewish or Gentile legalism being imposed on them. That was, that was my framework for this text. But I've become convinced that that's not Paul's point here. And I'm just going to offer this perspective to you. That interpretation assumes that Paul is arguing against the Torah in verses 13 and 14, which comes from a perspective that doesn't actually view the Torah as a good thing. So it reads, we have a slide. He forgave all our sins. Josh covered this last week having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. The assumption is that we think he's talking about the Torah, but this is where a little bit of Greek, you ain't gotta be a scholar, but a little bit of Greek study. You can go to blueletterbible.com and look at you know, some words and see what's actually being said in the language. In Greek, I'm not, going to, I'm not the type of guy that's black. I don't know how to pronounce this stuff. So just, just bear with me. What's being talked about is like a document or documentation of charges set up against you. Again, he went over this last week. And that, which had all of doc the documentation, your charge, everything is being nailed to the cross. It's canceled, done with, over. This has nothing to do with the Torah. This is about that which stood against you, that which would accuse you, that which was evidence of our sinfulness. That's being nailed or was nailed on the cross. Are you with me? Okay. 
Cool, here we go. So I'm going to argue that Paul is warning in our text, he's warning the Colossians against a false teaching of asceticism. Asceticism, sorry, this is a tongue twister, so if I butcher that word this whole time, just ignore that. You got it right, Hey, you, you. <laughs> and, and, and asceticism is a practice of strict self-denial as a measure of personal and or spiritual discipline. You would avoid various, if not all, forms of indulgence in anything that is physically pleasing, anything that would engage your senses, food, drinks, sex, or what have you, you would abstain from. So the Colossians are a mix of Jews and Gentiles, and there were some minor Jewish groups that actually practiced asceticism. I'm going to be in my head about that word. But, <laughs> but it was a larger practice outside of the Jewish culture. It was a human-made practice that was being brought against the Colossians, and that's why Paul is addressing it. Some false teachers who were a part of the body at a point were bringing in this, this practice that blended elements of the Judeo-Christian faith and of mysticism. So this syncretistic practice is, is, is making its way into the body and it's problematic. And I think confusion comes in when we interpret the text because it could be hard to follow the line of thinking. How many of you have Bibles that have like section dividers? They could be helpful sometimes, right? I don't think it's helpful here. Mainly because I think it breaks up Paul's line of communication and how we're tracking with his thought. So you've already gone through this chapter, so I'm not going to preach the whole thing again, but just a quick summary. At the beginning of Colossians 2, he begins by talking about his desire for the Colossians and the Laodiceans to know Jesus. That's why he's writing this letter. Jesus is his focal point. And Jesus is the person in whom the mysteries of God dwells. He is the final revelation of Yahweh. His, he desires this so that no one gets deceived by false information or by false beliefs. He encourages them to remain united with Jesus and living and growing in him. Paul cannot point more to Jesus. Gosh, if we heard that more often these days. And then he says this in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through what? Hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Some of the same language is used in the text that we're covering today. Colossians, don't be enslaved by human-made things that are aligned with the spiritual forces of the world. Stay attached to Jesus. That's his whole point. And then he goes on to talk about how Jesus is the head over all, over everybody, over everything, unapologetically. And it is through him that God has spiritually circumcised his people. And the cross was the circumcision procedure. And guess what? Brothers and sisters, Jesus embarrassed the spiritual forces of evil, put them on blast, says, I am the one who was victorious, and there's nothing that you can do to stop 
your demise. This is the beginning, and I will come back to put it all through. You still with me? Okay. Even the babies are with me. Let's go. The babes will praise God. Just playing with <laughs> So, after Paul talks about Jesus embarrassing the spiritual powers of this world, we get into our text. He's concerned about the Colossians being influenced from worldly practices and deceptions that are being brought against them. So verse 16, therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. Again, the assumption has been that Paul is now talking about Judaizers. Those that are saying you need to obey the commands of Torah in order to follow Jesus. That's, that's not who he's talking about here. So, allow me to explain, ladies and gentlemen. Again, this is where I think a little blue letter Bible could be helpful. <laughs> because the words in Greek for eat and drink are actually verbs, not nouns. It's eating and drinking. They are participating in the feasting of these celebrations. Hold on to that. There were people who were ascribed to the practice of asceticism that were criticizing the Colossians for gathering to celebrate these holidays because they were eating and drinking instead of going the route of self-degradation and self-denial. People are upset about their enjoyment. Paul is not going, hey, people are telling you you need to enjoy them. That's not his argument. Are you still following? Okay. Paul lists these celebrations in the Jewish calendar in a descending order. He goes from the annual festivals, which there were seven, to the new moons, which would happen monthly. They marked the start of a, new moon, I mean, of, of a new month in the Jewish calendar, and there would be various offerings to God on those days. And then you talk about the weekly Sabbaths. These, these times were for celebrating. They were for, they were for feasting. It's time to party. It's time to grub. It's time to get our, okay, listen. This is not a time for fasting and self-denial. That's Paul's point. Don't let anybody judge you for enjoying these things of God. Side note, I'm not arguing that we absolutely need to be keeping the feast and celebrations, but it's fine to still celebrate them. Why? Verse 17. These are a shadow of things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Jesus. So the phrase, the things that were to come, can also be translated as are to come or what is to come. Paul's point is that these celebrations, oh, sorry, Paul's point is not that these celebrations are empty now. It's not what he's arguing, but rather these are signposts to Jesus and the age to come. He is the perfect reality of what they were in our shadows of now. He is their fulfillment. Jesus fulfills the seven annual festivals of, of Israel. Some of them were fulfilled in his first arrival, like Passover, Pentecost, first fruits, right? Go read Leviticus. It's a task, but, but go do it. <laughs> But then when he comes back, he's going to fulfill the other feasts, such as the Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Trumpets, 
They, they all point to him. He is the ultimate offering that the new moon offerings were pointing to. He is the one in whom we find our true Sabbath rest, and we will enter into that rest fully in the age to come. These celebrations were glimpses of a future reality, yet that doesn't mean that we are forget, uh, forbidden from celebrating them now, if you want to. More on that in a bit. However, the ending of verse 17 in Greek can be translated. Here's a slide. But the body, did you see that timing? <laughs> but the body of Christ. What does that mean? In other words, only let your fellow members of the body instruct you when you need it, not the false teachers that are coming in, bringing in this, this practice of, of, of human tradition. So maybe you're thinking, Hakeem, you're confusing me and you're stretching this way too far. That's cool. Just hang in there with me. Verse 18, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person goes, also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. So Paul further tells the Colossians, don't let these false teachers try to count you out as if you're not following Jesus holistically. Don't you dare let them do that. They are prideful in their mystical experiences. The worship of angels here is probably not talking about like an actual direct worship of angels, but rather a type of worship that angels were performing. But whatever it means, the point is, they had some vanity going on, some arrogance that is not to be admired. Paul is going, as a matter of fact, it's literally just their imaginary fantasies that they're stepping into. That's all that that is. I'm like, dang, Paul, okay. <laughs> they were no longer connected to the head of the body. This seems to me to indicate that at one point they were following Jesus, truly and authentically. My assumption is that they truly believed that they were following Jesus correctly by denying themselves extremely. And they were claiming to have these mystical, revelatory visions, but Jesus is the final and complete revelation of God. You don't need no extra stuff. Amen? Okay, y'all with me tonight. This is cool. Their boasting was a form of self-idol... Isolation. That's what happens when we start getting arrogant and all puffed up. We inevitably start to isolate ourselves because nobody else is on our playing field. When you're disconnected from the body, you die. You ever cut off a finger? What happens to that finger? It might twitch a little bit, but it'll wither away. That's what happens when we isolate. We start to wither. And then we pray to God for us to be reattached through some type of spiritual surgery to be brought back to health. And to be separated from the body is to be separated from the head. That's the real problem. So, to lose connection from the head is to cease living, is to cease and growing as God desires. Paul's telling the Colossians that they weren't to let anyone who was detached 
from the head, judged them for how they were celebrating the holidays. The ascetics weren't even a part of the family anymore. So they didn't have the grounds to have their judgment received by the family of Jesus. Why care what they think? And maybe I'm stretching this even further in your, in your mind, and that's fine. But let's finish out the text. You still with me? Okay, verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the elemental, to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? He's stating, yo, you've died with Jesus. When you die, that releases you from obligation to something. It releases you from a status. It releases you from a particular relation. How many of you are married? Okay, that's your boo thing, right? What do we say in our vows? Till death do us part. The status of marriage ends, right? So he's saying, hey, um, brothers and sisters, through death, you have died to the rulership of the spiritual forces of this world. You have died to the human traditions of this world. So why do you act like you're still obliged to them? You are no longer underneath their, their ownership. You're no longer under their rubric for life because you are now submitted and you belong to Jesus the Messiah. They have died with Christ to the things of this world. So he asks, why did they still submit to his rules of asceticism? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are the rules that said you must reject the enjoyment of the physical things. And then he continues, the last two verses. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. This human practice of severe self-denial may have looked good externally, but it did nothing to cure them. At the end of the day, it was empty. Asceticism is a form of self-denial, but not all self-denial is asceticism. I bet it's pretty simple, right? And self-denial is a part of following Jesus. That's the tricky part. That's why I think they assumed that they were following Jesus better. Well, because they were doing what he was calling them to do, right? No. In Matthew 16, verse 24, he says this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. However, Jesus' point was not that his followers can't enjoy the richness of creation. Gosh, I can't count how many times I have heard, why are you listening to that music? Why are you hanging out with those people? Why are you watching that movie, that TV show? Bro, it's Toy Story, like. <laughs> What's up with this legalism? I'm confused. 
His point was that his followers must reject their own rubric for life and submit to his. Ungodly desire, self-preservation, selfishness, all of it got to go. Not that we can't enjoy. Oh, hold on. Sorry. I just did something on my computer. What is this? Uh, not that we can't enjoy music or art or literature or other things that we create out of God's creation. That's what image bearers do. That's what it means to be an image bearer. You mimic the God in whose image we are made in. And what does he do? He creates. So what are we called to do? Create. We enjoy. There's nothing sinful about going on a hike. Just because you're not going, Jesus, 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 doesn't mean you can't enjoy the richness of that creation. Yo, there's some bomb food in both of our cities. You're telling me Jesus is upset with you enjoying good food, even though you're not always going, ooh, Jesus, 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 Jesus. No, when we live in a way that follows what God intended, that's bringing glory to him. You don't think our father smiles when we enjoy the good gifts that he's given in creation? If you're a parent or a mentor, when you see the young person that you are helping to raise up, enjoy the good gifts that you're giving to them or just enjoying life, what does that do for you? I love when my little boy figures out that he can, you know, do all this stuff he ain't supposed to be doing. But to figure out (laughs) that he can enjoy this life, that brings smiles. Smiles to my face. That brings joy to my heart. I wouldn't change that for the world. How much greater is our Father in heaven smiling on his children? You with me? Okay. So the circle will all back. That was a pretty good circle. (laughs) Paul stated that Jesus is victorious over the world and its rulers, so there's no need to be concerned about how those who subscribe to worldly ways would judge them. Remember in Colossians 2.8, he told them not to be subjected to human traditions or the powers of this world, and I don't think he's telling them not to celebrate the Jewish celebrations. Though they are not mandatory for the community of Jesus, you still can enjoy them. For one, the festivals, the new moon celebrations, the Sabbaths were originally given by God himself, not by humans. They're not human construction, so clearly he's not talking about that. The issue was that the ascetics were coming against the Colossians because they wanted, they wanted the believers to live according to their rules about how and when to eat and when not to eat, how to enjoy this, how not to enjoy this, how to participate in that, how not to participate in that. But when these believers are going, "Mm -mm, mm -mm, we're going to enjoy the things of God, they're going, you guys aren't even following Jesus correctly. Am I saying, I I feel like I got to keep saying this because I feel like it gets misheard. Am I saying that believers have to keep observing these celebrations? No. But it's not wrong to celebrate them. That's the point. In the New Testament church, many of the Jewish believers still lived by Torah. They still went to synagogue, Nazarite vows, all types of stuff. They still lived out their culture. They just had in mind Jesus is Messiah. He's what this all is about. 
like, I feel like that's safe to say. Just because Jesus is the fulfillment of something doesn't mean that you can't celebrate something that's pointing and celebrating him. How dare you celebrate Pentecost? Which celebrates me pouring out my spirit on y'all. How dare you? (laughs) Sorry, that's kind of tongue-in-cheek. Anyways, listen. The shadows that Paul talks about are still meaningful. Think about how our sacrament of communion is very important. It's a shadow. Does that mean it's now meaningless? No. Why is it a shadow? Because Jesus literally broke his body and spilled his blood. But we take the bread and the cup in remembrance of the actual reality. But that happened already. So here we are waiting for the age to come when we will enjoy the marriage supper of the lamb, feasting, celebrating the fact of what Jesus has done, But until then, we participate like this. Does that make sense? Maybe it doesn't. Come talk to me afterwards. Communion shadows the future reality, and it is still one of the most meaningful practices of our faith today. The Jewish celebrations were being enjoyed by this Judeo-Gentile community of faith not because they were bound by Jewish legalism, but because they still had meaning and celebrated Jesus. The danger is when we focus on the shadow and miss Jesus, though. That's where the, the, the rub comes in. If we're so beholden to these things that are pointing to Jesus instead of actually enjoying the substance in which he is, that's when the danger comes in. So the ascetics were, I promise you I'm ending The ascetics were coming at the Colossians in judgment for engaging in eating and drinking, but they lost sight that it was all pointing to Jesus. They were disconnected from him. Instead, they sought to refrain from physical pleasures in order to receive special revelations and to display humility and piety. But it was all vain. It was empty because they missed the point. In fact, because they were disconnected from Jesus, they were disconnected from the body. Don't submit to the ways of the world. Don't be bombarded by their practices and pressures. I think this message is true for us today, too. I know this is a thank you for getting to the point. What about us? I think it's safe to assume that, by and large, asceticism is not what's plaguing our churches in Vancouver and Portland. I think it's the very opposite, hedonism, which is all about the pursuit of pleasure and satisfaction and indulgence. And although these two practices are polar opposite, they are sourced from the same spiritual forces of this world, from the same human traditions. Hedonism fleshes out in many ways, and we are continually being engulfed in its messaging in our culture, teaching that your personal satisfaction is the highest good and the, and the proper aim of human life. This often incarnates within our consumerism, as the teachings of asceticism were infiltrating the Colossian church, consumeristic hedonism is infiltrating ours. I think 2020 and 2021 have exposed that. This is where some of you might get angry with me, but again, you ain't got to email me. 
Let's have a family chat. Many folks are joining churches that fit their consumeristic desires. Churches that satisfy their personal preferences. I like the teaching here. I like the style of music over there. I don't like their stance on this. I want to hear the pastor condemn that. We can have our personal preferences. There's nothing wrong with that. But when we start to think of them as objective and ultimate, that's when we have a problem. When we look at our brother or sister as lesser than because they lean more right or left than us politically, that's a problem. That's arrogant and vain. Don't worry, I ain't going to get into all the detail. I'm just saying. When we look at our sibling as lesser than for any reason, as if our preferences give us a higher knowledge or a higher way of following Jesus, then it is evidence that we have become disconnected from the head. Jesus is not owned by a political perspective, conspiracy theory, a particular approach to solving a societal issue, or by anything, and neither is his body. We have allowed the teachings of the world to influence us, and we have submitted to their rules. If you don't repost or post this, then that makes you stand for that. If you don't agree with someone, then that makes you two enemies. If someone challenges the way that you think or challenges the cultural narrative that you believe in, then you must cancel them. If someone would dare to confront your ideological idolatry, shake the dust of them. Why are these the rules of the world? Because they are ultimately about you and your comforts being first and foremost. These rules have made their way into our churches. If you don't post or repost this, then that must mean you're a racist or that must mean you're a Marxist. How do we get here, family? If you don't agree with me, then we can't be in fellowship. If you challenge my thinking, then you must have some conservative or progressive agenda canceled. If you confront my ideological idolatry, then you are cut off. This type of thinking is dangerous to our communities of faith. Since, we, since when did disagreement mean that you can't be unified? Yo, like, that's wild to me. And I'll tell you this, this ain't even in my notes. Real quick, side tangent. Um, where I come from, people are watching how we engage. That whole thing about Jesus calling us to be his witnesses to the world, that's not a joke. I know many people that look like me that are refusing to step into this faith just like I did for 17 years because of the witness that the church is giving in our society today. Why would I be a part of that? They're fighting over whether or not that was racist. They're fighting over who's the president of the United States. They're fighting over systems and how those systems infiltrate X, Y, and Z. They're fighting over stuff that honestly is just ideas when we're actually living in this reality. I can't count on my hands, even outside of Philadelphia, in Portland, I can't even count on two hands how many people I know right now that are either sick or who have died 
in the last six months that I know personally, and guess what? That is way bigger fish to fry than our ideological warfare. People are actually dying and getting sick. So we have good news to help remedy. It might not all get fixed now, but we should be darned if we don't have hope in what could be. A witness matters, and Jesus prayed for it. That's how serious he took it. This man is about to get murdered, and what does he pray for? The unity of his future church. Are you kidding me? Okay, I promise I'm wrapping up. I feel like I went so long. Since when has the body been monolithic or uniform? Since when has it been okay for divisions to be just another shoulder shrug? Like, oh, that's just what happens nowadays. When our hedonism comes out through our preferences, it can look like others. It, it can look like wisdom to others. Oh, they're so dedicated to Jesus. Ah, so pious. <laughs> And I'm speaking from experience. I've allowed my own hedonism to infiltrate how I've navigated church spaces. So I'm not saying this as if I'm detached from that reality. This is me too. It can look like we're so humble and committed to Jesus, just like the aesthetics that Paul was warning about, but it's empty. It's foolish to live by the rules of the world when the things that we are clamoring to will one day perish. Social media, political systems, everything, it's all gonna fade one day. This is the craftiness of the enemy. That is what the spiritual forces of this world do. And we will be foolish to think that they are not being crafty in how they're dividing the church right now. And we are willingly submitting to that in many ways. We're doing a lot of good too, but we also are submitting in some ways, okay. Newsflash, uh, Jesus is overcome. I feel like I just in there. So why would we let the teachings of the world come in and behave as they have a stronghold on us? They don't. So don't let anyone judge you for remaining faithful to him and his teachings. And I'm gonna call a band back up for having a level of nuance in your thinking that's needed for fighting for the health of the body, not based on your own preferences and pleasures, but based on Jesus. That is admirable, brothers and sisters. And we as a church are a shadow that points to Jesus, that points to a greater reality. We are pointing to the kingdom of God. The church is the embassy of the kingdom of God. We are not its fullness. It's like when you go overseas and you step on foreign soil and you walk into a U.S. embassy, it's like you're walking into America. Why? Because the culture, everything that's going on there represents America fully. So when somebody walks into the space where the church is gathered, gathered, I guarantee you they are experiencing some taste of what the kingdom is like. If a random person walked in on the street, walked in here today, I don't know how any of y'all got here, but when you first got here, I guarantee you tasted some glimpses of the kingdom. That's what we are. Not the world. That's what we are. We are in the world to display that. Okay. And lastly, do not let anyone disqualify you because you don't submit to their hedonism. 
And don't try to disqualify anyone if they don't submit to yours. We are only submitted to the head. His name is Yeshua of Nazareth. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.